right, welcome back everybody to another show of Flyway Connections. My name is Chris. Again, I'm here with my buddy Joe and Sharp. Joe? Hey, how you guys doing today? So on today's episode, we're happy to have on Chef Jean-Paul Bougerois from um, Meat Eaters and also Duck Camp Dinners. Hey, how you doing, JP? Hey guys, man, how you doing? You you even nailed the pronunciation. Oh, I was, oh so yeah, I, sounds I, like I, I, I was totally, just about to. <laughs> you totally, you totally nailed it, man. Yeah, so I for, like we're saying I probably heard your name in my household like four or five times a week on the TV for my boys watching the, the that first season. Oh, that's it. That's that's it. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering. I was like, you must have some. Some coon ass blood in you. No, but I, yeah. so I, I'm here from. A, yeah. I, I'm not originally from Louisiana, but I've been living. I'm, I live down here in Louisiana. Got it. Got yeah, it. Do you yeah. live in Louisiana currently? Yeah, no. currently. Yeah, I live in Louisiana. I retired oh. out here and stayed. Uh, my family definitely loved. Fell in love with the Louisiana culture, and um, yeah, we're from Derrida now. Ah, yeah. Cool. Cool. I passed through Derrida the other day. On I twenty heading uh, heading to Vicksburg, Mississippi. Nice. So. Oh, nice, Vicksburg. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me, guys. Man, it's been a it's been a pleasure, Chris. Uh, I was was pleasure meeting you at the Ducks um, the the Ducks Expo uh, the other day in in Dallas, and uh, glad we got to make the connection. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't. I actually talked to. Uh, it's kind of funny. I, I talked to the guys about it. It's like. Because when you were that, you sat right behind me. I was like, man, he looks so familiar. And he looks, I kept thinking, is it like, because I kept calling you uh, Jean-Paul. And I was like, is that him? And then yeah. I heard somebody come and somebody mentioned it. And I was like, oh, that is him. And that's why I brought up the whole uh, Duck a la Range from the episode and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But man, it was, yeah. uh, it was kind of a, I mean, he, he would, if y'all, y'all saw JP, he had a, I don't know, would you have two big bags of, I don't know, all kinds of different uh, goodies or whatever? Um, and just looked like your normal down to earth guy. I just sat down and listened to Duck Call. And uh, and then we brought uh, Hayden. Did you get to meet uh, Hayden Richard? Uh, no, I, I hadn't. I hadn't. Yeah. No. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. He could, uh, uh, we like Hayden a lot. Um, and Bill, Bill Daniels is up there too. But I guess. Uh, Joe, so Joe usually starts starts it out, but I, you want to start it out and ask the uh, the big question we ask everybody. Hey, my favorite question: Hey, how was your season this year? This year, how was my how was my duck season this year? Oh yeah, yeah. How was it? You know, it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good actually, despite a lot of the numbers coming out of Delta Waterfowl and DU on migration and such, and the weather was terrible. Uh, terrible duck yeah. hunting weather in South Louisiana this year, but uh, we actually had a pretty good year. And I, my, the main places that I hunted uh, in Louisiana were um, all the way southeast in Venice, uh, Lower Terrebonne Parish, where we filmed the first season of Duck Camp Dinner, and then also in Cameron Calcasieu Parish along Gaydon Kaplan. Um, yeah. You know th- those areas for for speckle valleys and teal and so on. So. Um, you know, despite the numbers being pretty atrocious and the weather being not ideal duck weather, we actually had a pretty good year. Of course, you know, you had to go where they were and not just depend on whatever lease or property you usually hunt. Right. And I think if you're willing to to travel for birds and ducks, uh, you can find them, but it'll it'll take some, you know, some windshield, um, windshield time and and hours on on the the road. 
Yeah, you yeah, you're actually you're not hunting. I'm hunting just west of you out there by um the Lagacine Welsh and uh Kinder area. Yeah, yeah. We we kind of butted up. We hunted kind of uh like that butted property against the Lagacine Refuge uh oh, yeah, yeah. In, in West Louisiana. We had some really great hunts, man. Um I mean, the the timing and the weather was right for those hunts in West Louisiana. We had a good um, like a, like the right wind, I forget which wind they prefer down there, but, uh, uh, south wind. It, it, yeah. Well, and it was like a good hardy 20 mile an hour south wind. Right. Yeah. So, um, it was, we had, a, we had some fun hunts and we got a lot of it on camera doing show me duck camp dinners. Nice. So, nice. Um, good. It was good. And that's right, pretty neat. So an, another question before we go on, we all we, we talk about this all the time with guys from Louisiana and out of state. Have you ever had Daryl's? I, I Daryl's in uh in Lake Charles. Yes. Yes, I have. And I had but I had it for the first time this year. I wouldn't know what you're talking about unless somebody had brought me there from Lake Charles to Daryl's and we had lunch there. Are you a fan you of Daryl's? Oh yeah, yeah, I take everyone from out of state. I always take the Daryl's and come duck hunting. Why do I think that I had a ham and cheese po' boy or ham and cheese? <laughs> is that a so they're, they're ham? Does that sound right? Yeah, they're ham. Uh, they're um, they're roast beef ham uh, uh, po' boys. Yeah, they call the Daryl Special. Daryl Special. I was just about to say that. Yep. Yeah. So I definitely had that in a bag of chips and I believe a root beer. If I yeah. if, if I know my if I know my traditional boy order there. <laughs> nice. Would you rate it? Say that again. What would you rate that 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 poor boy? <sighs> you know what? I, I I probably I probably wouldn't rate it very high. Be honest with you, because I don't remember it that well. And if something uh-huh. that would stick in my mind like that, it now I remember liking it. Um, I just I probably wouldn't put that if I if I had to tell you my top five poor boy places. Daryl's probably wouldn't be it. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's but and so, if you ever yeah. go to bear if you ever go to Bears uh in Covington, Bears Po' Boys and not uh well let's see, it would be yeah, it could be Covington, Mandeville, Covington. Um Bears Po' Boys has one of the best roast beef sandwiches that I've or roast beef po' boys that I've ever had in my life. Um nice. It is it's it's up there on how you define the great Philly cheesesteaks of Philadelphia. And I'm not talking Geno's and Pat's. I'm talking about D'Alessandro's, John's roast beef, I mean John's uh roast pork, uh Jim's on South Street. Like I'm talking those places, not your Geno's and Pat's, but I feel like Bears, Roast Beef Po Boys up there with like D'Alessandro's Philly cheesesteaks. They should be spoken in the same the same kind of uh, royalty, if you will. But anyways, I don't know if we're here about talking about sandwiches, although I can talk about sandwiches all night. Yeah. Like that's kind of one of my things. I like me a sandwich, but um, no, you're good. <laughs> and I, I think a big thing too, is like, um, it's just the, the culture and the variety of food. So if people have never visited Louisiana, um, you know, I've been to Chicago, I've been to New York, I've been to California, I've been to Georgia, different States. I'm from Texas. Um, and tried all kinds of food. Uh, I, I'm from Texas, so I love spicy food. Uh, and we, we've kind of talked about this. The spicy food from Texas is definitely not the same as the spicy from Louisiana. Yeah. Well, me yes. and my wife, my kids, when we 
we uh because we're we're uh, me and joe both military when we got based in uh, at fort polk louisiana um we kind of didn't know what to expect and you know, we heard the whole gumbo growing up in texas yard right next to us so people had gumbo and <laughs> yeah. it, it's definitely it's definitely different um but we did have you know during what the uh the, the big Katrina hurricane, we had a lot of uh, people that actually moved to Texas because um, that mm-hmm. stayed here. So I had I had friends from Louisiana here um, and their mom would make great, great food. And, and for some time at the, in the beginning, I didn't know what it was because, you know, here it's all about smoked brisket, smoked pork, pork, butt, pulled pork, whatever it may be, anything beef. That, and you live in you're living in Texas now, so you kind of understand. Um, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but when I went to Louisiana, just. Uh, because my wife is not a big, she, she doesn't really like spicy food, Texas spicy food. She, I mean, she'll eat it, but the Louisiana, that spice, it, it's a mm. different type of flavor. And we, we just fell in love with it. So now I try to make my own version. Um, and I, I won't tell you how I make it because I'm not the best, I'm not <laughs> the best, but I, t- I tried it. I, I think I told you I made uh, uh duck orange the first time. And I don't even know if I'm yeah. saying that right because, uh, you are. But, uh Okay, great. <laughs> but I made that for the first time. I got I got really into the culture. Uh, the one big thing that I got into, and we'll kind of talk about this a certain somebody, is eating uh, pudu. Uh, you know that yeah. that water <laughs> chicken. Or uh, I fell in love with eating. It. I I you know, and people and like you said, you know, here and the, I think you said in episode five. Um, that's the that's the uh, pudu one. Um. You know, people kind of look at you sideways when you say you eat that. And even here in Texas, like they're like, you spend a little too much time in Louisiana, boy. I'm like, what? <laughs> but but it, it, it's insane how you can make something that some people just think it's awful. Uh, great. And the um, and if you learn about the history and I'm going to keep talking, I'll stop in a bit. But if you learn about the history about Louisiana, the different cultures that are there, the blends that y'all had, it's just it, it I, to me, I think uh I will take Louisiana food over any deep dish or pie or Philly cheesesteak. Um, but that's me. Yeah. But yeah, look, I don't, I don't think you're, I don't think you're wrong about the history and cuisine of, of food in South Louisiana. Uh, I mean, it does have a, a rich history of everything from the Africans to Europeans to the native Americans. Uh, and eventually all became this Creole and Cajun kind of, um, some semblance of cuisine and it continues to evolve to the, today. Um, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a beautiful state, man. It really is. It, it does. It, it obviously has its issues, you know, um, yeah. it has some environmental issues. It has some political issues. It has some conservation issues. Um, you know, there's obviously hurricanes and, and that type of things that come in and, and kind of put a, to mess some really beautiful places up, but the people and the food continues to just be stronger than ever down there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as you said, a lot of people after Katrina, and I would say the same after, um, after the big hurricanes that happened in West Louisiana, let's see, that would be like Laura and Delta or something like Delta, that. Yeah. Kind of came in consecutively. A lot of people moved to Texas. I mean, people keep moving to Texas. There's a reason for that. It's a great state. I love living here. Um, mm-hmm. and shoot, there's places in East, East Texas and parts of Houston where I swear I'm back in Louisiana. You know, yeah, if, it wasn't, <laughs> if it wouldn't, if it wouldn't be for the big, 
green pastures of cattle and hay in a lot of places where I live, but there's a, there's a ton of Cajun culture here in East Texas. So, which is part of the reason why we live where we live now here, just outside of Houston. So, uh, that was something that, um, it, it, it was like, you know, uh, Louisiana is just kind of outstretching its arms into these areas, uh, <laughs> which is why you still see people cooking gumbos in their own way and getting oh, yeah. Cajun food, even, even if they're not from Louisiana, they've been influenced by, you know, the people leaving Louisiana, coming to Texas and just being in proximity. So great state, man. They both, you know, obviously Louisiana is my home, like home where I grew up. Texas is my home right now. Um, you know, and I'll always be partial to the boot state, you know? So, <laughs> so I guess let's go in, let's get into, uh, uh, the, this past season. Um, I think I want to talk about it just because of how there was uh, six episodes of, I'm correct, correct me if I'm wrong. There were six episodes, six, six episodes in, in season one. That's right. Yeah. And they were anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes long. Um, but it yep. really attracted a lot of people and not even the duck hunter. I mean, and I think, the big thing is just the the way the the way the show made real people look just r- normal guys hanging out you know mm-hmm. you know and i talked to people about it uh my, my brother-in-law of mine um he's not a big waterfowler but you know he watches it um and i guess the biggest thing is how how was it how did y'all get influenced to do that and how was the connection between y'all and meat eaters how was that even, how was that made? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this duck camp in season one that you, you, you've seen, we filmed all six episodes in five consecutive days. That's what we did. Like, so we just filmed nonstop five consecutive days and made that into six episodes. That's how duck camp dinners was formatted. We didn't, we didn't break it down into episodic like structures. We didn't have talking points. We definitely didn't have a script. You know, like we just wanted to document this place that we love, this place, this duck camp that we had come to for, um, you know, at that, at that point last year, they had had that camp there for five years and we'd make, you know, we make pilgrimages there every weekend, um, for during duck season. And, um, and part of me selfishly wanted to just document it to, have it for myself. If it, if it never got this, if it never got seen by 10 people, I didn't care. Um, I mean, I, obviously I cared about that, but really selfishly, I wanted something that I can always remember this place by documenting everybody there that goes to that camp. We're all best friends. We all grew up together in a lot of ways. Some of us from elementary school, some of us from high school and college, but we continue to be best friends to this day. And that's why there's such a good chemistry in that camp because we, what you saw is what we do every weekend. We just did it for five consecutive days. Right. And, um, and it was fun, man. It was, it was good to take, um, take the focus off of rain outs, you know, coming into decoys and big piles of birds and put it into why most duck hunters. And I would say the vast, vast majority of us, actually duck hunt. And I was taught, having this conversation the other day with a passionate waterfowler. I said, man, look, waterfowl hunting, duck hunting and goose hunting. It's the only sport that I know of where you can be in a group of three people. Well, you can hunt by yourself, obviously, but five people, 18 people in an A-frame in a dry field and be cutting up the whole time, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, cooking in the blind, 
taking you making jokes like ragging on somebody because they missed the layup shot in the decoys. You name it. <laughs> I can't think. I can't think of another another you know outdoor sport, hunting sport that has that same type of community. And so, um, you know, I've, to me, that's always been the fun part about duck hunting is why I don't get, I don't get too riled up on myself around other or other people. If I miss a shot, even if it's a layup, it's like, yeah, that sucks. You wish you would have gone down. We all like seeing rain outs when it's from our barrel. We all like piles of ducks. We get that. But, um, you know, I think the real like heart and soul of duck camp dinners is everything that happens outside of the duck blind. You know, it's the people you're hanging out with or you're cooking with, you're going jug lining for catfish, you're cutting up, you're drinking beers, you're smoking cigars late at night, you're waking up with hangovers in the morning. And that's really the truth, you know? And, um, and that's okay to have that conversation. And I find to your point over and over and over again in the comment section and still to this day, people message me over Instagram or YouTube and that don't even waterfowl hunt have never sat in the duck blind. They may be hunters or maybe they won't, but that's, um, we, we feel like we actually tapped into something with filming like that because you don't even have to know anything about duck hunting to love duck camp dinners. Um, you just have to be a fan of friends and a fan of food and a fan of community and having fun with each other. And then that, that pretty much like covers a lot of people, you know, that have those interests. And yeah. so, um, we made it, it got, it, it was first on the Mossy Oak, um, YouTube, um, YouTube channel because they were a prime, like a big sponsor for us. Um, and then because I have spices at Spiceology, Meat Eater does as well. I think they have six or eight, uh, different, um, game vegetable, seafood blends, spice blends that are sold through Spiceology. Um, uh, and they had gotten a wind of my, my show. They, mm -hmm. we started having a conversation. They ended up licensing the season, season one and, and all the rights to season two for, to, to be the producer on season two. And we created a season two this past duck season. Um, and it was the first show. It's the only show to this day, uh, that they haven't produced themselves the season one that is the only show that's on their YouTube channel that they haven't had their own production, own concept behind it. And to me, that was, that was a big, that was a big like moment for me to have, to have that real realization. So, um, you know, it was, it was all through just wanting to document this really cool place. At least I thought it was cool. I think a lot of people thought it was cool. This really cool place with this great group of friends and all the stuff that we do and, um, tell this story about a duck hunter which I think a lot of us share, like can see our own selves in that show, right? Like no matter if you have your duck camp on land or on water, or maybe it's a whitetail camp that y'all usually go to. Maybe it's a pheasant camp. Maybe it's a fishing camp. Mm -hmm. You kind of have those same friends, same moments, same time, same jokes, same, you know what I mean? And so yeah. everybody, everybody kind of sees a lot of people, a lot of hunters see themselves in that show even though they've never been on a floating camp in their life, you know? So, um, yeah. again, I think, I think that was just one of those things we were like lucky to connect with people or maybe not lucky, but we weren't anticipating like connecting with people in that way. Um, but we did. And it was, it's been one of the like really blessings of my life to create that show 
uh, because I get to do it with some of my best friends and I get to hunt ducks, which I am like, it's, it's traveling, not in, not in this order. Right. But they all like <laughs> take up equal passions of my life, traveling, waterfowl, hunting, cooking. And, um, those three things, man. And I, and I figured out, I do, I figured out how to waterfowl hunt and, and, and cook as a profession, um, and as a job. And if I can just, you know, like get in traveling there, well, I have like the trifecta be busy year round. but, um, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's been, it's been a hell of a, hell of a series and a blessing on my life. Um, and, uh, hopefully, hopefully like your sons, Joe, is that Joe or Harp's uh, sons? Yeah. So, you know, hopefully your boys get, something out of it hopefully y'all see y'all selves in that show and you know can get a couple good recipes a couple good laughs out of it yep. and know that there yep. are more people like us than there aren't you know what i mean yeah and that that that's uh so that's that's all that's actually 100 percent true because i think we can all agree that um so joe and sharp have uh I've been a longer waterfowlers than me. And, you know, I, I grew up in Texas a lot, big game. I'm not going to go to the story cause Joe, uh, rolls his eyes all the time. But, um, basically when I got into waterfowl it was because of Joe and I fell in love with it because of the fact that, you know, you're dealing with your friends, you're, you're cutting up, like you said, and you get those, you know, everybody has those jokes, you know, like, uh, Hey Chris, you know, stay Don't off the duck call. Decoys. Don't shoot my decoys or stay off the duck call and blow the whistle. Yeah. Here's here's a jerk cord, and uh, and we 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 brought this up. Yeah, we brought this up. I am convinced if they ever if if there's ever an Olympic sport for uh, jerk cording, I'm I'm gonna win it. I'll take the gold. Best I'm jerk telling. cord cooler in Louisiana. I'm telling you, anybody can challenge me. If anybody's listening, call me out. We'll go on a hunt. And we'll see who's pulling the birds the best. I'm telling you, there's a science to it, just like everything else. But, but man, I and JP, I, I can't tell you enough that that that's 100% true. I think why, honestly, why the show just kicked off. And I think I found y'all because uh, I'm a, I follow a lot of waterfowl on YouTube, and I think it was um, it came up, and uh, you know I watched the first couple of it and i the the intro music you know um was uh what's his name um well gabbard well gabbard yeah, yeah. I, and we, I, we, I, we I both listen, yeah we both listened to it and we're like you oh, know okay good music so we i started watching it and i just next thing i know i was done with the episode i was like oh well i gotta see the next one so um <laughs> yeah and that's how you know I, I got into the whole uh watching different of the episodes but um i guess before we go on let's kind of uh one episode kind of stuck with me just because um of how uh how simple it really is to make food that 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 make game or animals that are habited in your area to make it taste mm -hmm. good that other people or other areas will not think or dream of you know eating that was uh, that was the one we kind of brought up earlier was the uh, episode five with the pudu and water chicken coot if people don't know the it's also yep. it's a coot um, mm -hmm. and, uh, I mean, I, I take it home and I, I, I eat them. So, um, I told Joe and I told Joey, Joe's son, I was like, man, we're going to, we're going to do a coot shoot one day and just limit out. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, look, I, I didn't, I didn't know that was like a thing 
until I started hunting outside of Louisiana. And that really wasn't until after my college years. You know, yeah. and, and in other words, I grew up most of my, you know, teenage and young adult life thinking that everybody ate pool dew, that everybody shoot them. Like if you had a slow duck hunt, you could always, you could always scoop a, you know, Baker's dozen of pool dew out the wall, you know, off, yeah. off the grass somewhere. So creep up on them in a, in a P-Rog, you know, not, not under power. And that's, that's <laughs> one of the funnest ways to do it. Like shotgun in a boat, you're riding solo and you're paddling in these like grassy little areas, kind of ducking behind lily patches of lilies or bends in the bends in the, um, kind of Creek and then shooting them that way. Um, so we always ate them, especially, I mean, like part of the reason, 50% of the reason why you shot pool dew growing up was for the gizzards. Uh, mm-hmm. they have superior, superior gizzards to ducks. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're more like the size, almost the size of a speckle belly goose, a little bit smaller, but in between, and to be in between a, a duck gizzard, even a big mallard, or a canvas bag gizzard bigger than that usually. Mm-hmm. So, um, we just, we just always grew up eating them and cooking them. I often say like Cajun food, the gumbos, the fricassees, the sauce pecans, they are the, they are the great equalizer of game that you thought you didn't like. And, yeah. um, you know, I want to, I want to say like, you're, you're asking about Pudu and I'll, and I'll talk about Pudu for all night. I, I believe it's a good <laughs> bird. It's a good yeah. bird, especially like, if you, if you're hunting for, for meat, like a lot of people spend a lot of money. Here's, hear me out here. Yeah. Duck hunting ha- is more expensive than it ever has been from, oh, yeah. from, you know, mud <laughs> motors to decoys, to shotguns, to shells, everything you need to duck hunt is expensive. And so like, if you get on a bad lease or maybe the ducks, you know, they have a bad migration. The weather's not there where you usually hunt isn't producing the traffic of waterfowl has in the past and, but you got pool dew on the, on the, on the property or coop, then shoot them because you spent all this money to go duck hunting. You might as well get some good meat out of it. And frankly, I think it's really good meat. And if you don't, and if you can't stand, if you can't stand the thought of cooking pool dew, then like I said, go ahead and put it in a, put in a Cajun gravy and a gumbo or something like that. And I guarantee you it'll taste good because Cajun food, it can make, you know, the lowliest of things. And if that's your opinion, taste good, <laughs> but just as, but just as serious, like the, the, all the folks that hunt greater Canadian geese, greater Canada geese, like even lessers, mm-hmm. um, you know, no, everybody like, like, it's kind of like under the table thing, you know, like these, all these goose hunters, you know, shooting a butt, shooting their three big honkers a day and so on. I mean, that's a ton of meat and they're like, no, but for real, like, what, how do you cook this? You know, they, they're <laughs> greasy. They're They're tough. They take forever. They're irony. They blah, blah, blah. You can't eat the legs. Who eats the legs? Who saves the legs? You know, like <laughs> you hear it all the time. And if people, you know, got out of their own, like hand me down folklore, you know, like my dad never ate poodoo. He said it was trash. That, now I'm going to call it trash. And, and like, actually kind of put some effort and thought and some time. Like, unfortunately, like, like a big goose breast, if you're going to cook that down a crock pot, like that's going to take eight hours. Like time is time is whatever. If you're not good with giving the time to do it, then I'm not sure why you're hunting in the first place. But 
you know, it's no different, man. It's like, you got to know how to cook it. Everybody says that with game. It could be, I've, I've seen, I've seen people like, I have, I have a relative who did not know to cook backstrap, like at most medium, you know what I mean? Like, that's crazy. They grind everything. You know what I mean? Like they, he's a, he's a deer. And I'm like, well, I'm like, whoa, whoa. Like you never made fajitas with this. Yeah. You know, you never made like, you never cut little medallions and flash fried them and ate them with like a little country gravy. Like, dog, like you're missing out, son. You know, I mean, there's, 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 (laughs) there's just, there's people all over that just know what they know from what was handed down to them from generations after generations. And that's okay. But like, as soon as you break out of that mold, man, everything's on the table. You know what I mean? Like anything's on the table unless it'll kill you and poisonous, but surely, you know, but I always thought like maybe, maybe there is something to Louisianans eating pool dew and, um, and like the feed that they, so for some reason, there's just a mass abundance of pool dew in Louisiana. I don't know that. I'm sure there's a conservation of wildlife biologist that knows an answer to this. My thought is that the freshwater grass mats and in, in the, in the like natural vegetation of the freshwater swamps in Louisiana, I mean, there's thick is my backyard grass that I'm walking on right now. And I haven't hunted in any other place that's like that. And of course, there's nat- natural grasses and vegetation in the rice fields in Stuttgart and Stuttgart and everywhere you go. But like not, I've never seen that thick, feel like you can walk on top of these big grass. And them pool do love it. And they sit in it and eat it all, all season until it's gone. And they may move over from pond to pond but they're clearing the way. And you can say the same things about the ringnecks in the area. Like we get a lot of ringnecks. I'm doing some yeah. people call them blackjacks, Black uh, yeah. skulls, right? We get a bunch of ringnecks and they kind of, they've kind of taken over, but we also get like a bunch of canvas backs late in the season. And I love canvas backs. One of my most favorite eating pieces of waterfowl ever. Um, so, you know, migratory patterns and so on and so forth, they change, but, you know, like seriously, like you're going to spend the money to go duck hunting every year. And if you're, if you're hunting for meat, like, and you should be because it's the law, like you should be eating. Like, I don't know. I think different States are different, but to, you know, not waste what you're cooking. Don't waste your money, you know, shoot the pool, do shoot the goods. And if anything, you should shoot the pool, do and eat them for two reasons. One, they're delicious. First of all, foremost, but two, they're also bullies in conservation. They're also bullies when it comes to the pothole regions uh, of Canada and North America, and they will steal nest, kick ducks out of nestings and, and break their, break the duck eggs to take the nest for themselves. So shoot the poodoo, shoot the coots, eat them, try them <laughs> out. Uh, you're, 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 you're filling the freezer and helping with duck numbers and conservation at the same time. Yeah. That's- that makes absolutely sense. I'm going to shoot the poodoo and I'm going to eat the poodoo, Joe. Uh, not before 10 o'clock. Not before 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There, there should be a time rule to that, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, as we speak, look at this. Look at this goose flying solo. He must be lost. Yeah. But uh, I'm right. I'm right by Lake Conroe. So I think there's some like resident, like lessers that kind of hang around here all year. But oh, I've never nice. seen one fly over my house. 
So I know before I cut off Sharp, Sharp, did, were you going to say something? I didn't mean to cut you, you off. You go ahead. I'll go after you. No, no, no. I had cut you off earlier. That's what I'm asking. Oh, oh. Um, I was going to say, like, the funny thing about just uh, just cooking cooking game. Uh, this year, we we my boss shot a few ducks up in uh, Kansas, and he brought them back. And we were kind of having just a little get-together and whatnot uh, at one of the lodges we were hanging out at. And like what you're talking about overcooking game he did he put a good blackened seasoning on the duck and just seared it in some butter real hot for like 90 seconds just you know mm-hmm. from the outside sear and there was a bunch of older gentlemen there have been duck hunting for years i mean this guy's in his 70s and they brought that bowl out but we had a spread we had oysters rockefeller we had that duck we had gator tail there was oysters and gator tail left. There was no duck. I felt like the old man was about to stab me with a toothpick. He was trying to get. <laughs> <laughs> and and then he goes, he goes, that was ringneck, and the guy just about absolutely lost it. He's like, this is ringneck, and like you said, people like they give yep. these birds a bad name because they've heard it from, from people, and it's just passed down the line. Oh, don't eat that stuff. It's it's not good but it's just the way they're preparing it is all it is. Sure. Yeah. It's really interesting though. Now that you, you mentioned ringnecks because he brought back ducks from Kansas. Is that what he, you said? He was hunting in Kansas, huh? Yeah. Something they, like that. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he went up to go see his, um, so I, I got out in Arkansas and it was my boss and he went up to go see a friend's uh, in law and they just went up and went hunting some public land for two days and just came back down. And yeah, yeah. They, ring necks up there you you know it's you know it's like so interesting is you know we don't get a lot i don't see a lot of mallards that are in lower terrebone parish anymore uh every now and then we see one but you know when you shoot one typically they have you know the skin you have the breath but they don't have a big fat cap on them right because they've migrated they've left the big the corn and wheat and sorghum and milo, whatever they're eating in the North and Kansas and Oklahoma and so on. And, um, they're down all the way in Louisiana and they burned a lot of that fat off. So you don't get those same like corn fed fatty mallards that you do, but the ringnecks, the ringnecks in Louisiana, at least, and I'm imagining the same, we call them butterballs because they have this big old fat cap on them where you can actually render like, is that almost like a small mallard brass? It's got that big old cap on it. And, um, maybe, and I, were they the same? Like, did you remember that big fat cap, uh, on that covered their breasts? Uh, those they, ones from Kansas, they, they brought them back breasted with they brought them on for transport. And then uh, yeah. all we did is we just cubed them up put them in a brine for, you know, 30 minutes and then heavy, heavy season. Yeah. But I, that, now that you're speaking about that, the ringnecks though, I shot some in Arkansas that had, they were, like you said, like that fat cap on them. It was in, yeah. it was insane. It was insane. Yeah. It was even like just a try to get balls, man. Out, man. <laughs> like, holy crap. Yeah, they do. They, they keep that big old cap on them. And so, like, it's nice for us. I, like, I like I like shooting them because of that, you know, blue wing teal, um, the widgeons, um, the canvas backs have a nice fat cap on them, nice and even, much more like a mallard wood in the north. 
but the ringnecks, I mean, they're just overloaded with them. I mean, we could shoot only males if we wanted to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and have fun with it. And, um, and, uh, but they always got a good, good fat cap on them. In fact, I believe um, that duck on orange recipe, Chris is with ringnecks that we made in, in episode one. Yeah. 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 So when I, I did actually, I, I did mine with ringnecks too. So, uh, we have, up here in North Texas, and uh, I did I did a I did a couple hunts down like more central Texas. Uh, we did a bunch of farm ponds out there, so it was just loaded with ringnecks. I have I have uh, I, I just had I think we I brought home I don't even know how much how much I think it was like thirty some ringnecks, and there was people just giving ringnecks out. It was kind of for a, a sponsored hunt and stuff, so. Um, just for that week that, that I was down there. So it was, it was, it was pretty good, but actually I made that duck orange with the ring neck. So. And JP, yeah, they cook good, man. Uh, we never had an issue yet with them. What's up, man? Oh, it's, it's funny you say that. Cause you know, I'm in Louisiana and you're wishing all the ring necks, you're shooting the dog rays and everything. And you've always heard it growing up, like divers, you know, a hey, brine them and take the skin off, take the fat off. Cause that's what gives it what people say the fishy taste, but um, I like the fact that you're saying that no, that you know, leave the fat on because I mean, there's probably thousands of waterfowlers out there that the first thing that they do when they, when they get the those um divers is they cut that fat, they you know, they breast them out with uh, without the skin to you know, thinking it's gonna be a fishy taste. Yeah, well, I think uh, that goes a lot with their diet. I know, like I said, in South Louisiana, in those freshwater swamps I, they're still eating the same grass that the pool do and the widgeons and the pintails and the puddle ducks are eating they're all eating the same thing they're not they don't need to go dive for fish to do it i mean they're literally landing on hundreds hundreds of thousands of acres of grass mat and um we i we call it widgeon grass although i'm I'm, i don't believe that's actually the right name for it but that's always what we called it um and so I actually think they're eating just those same birds. Now, if you're in the Chesapeake Bay and shooting and shooting ringnecks, uh, dogri or, or, or redheads, maybe there's something to that. <clears throat> I've never tried one. I've never eaten one. Uh, but I know like I would have to cook it with the skin and fat on first to convince me because it's too it's too good with it on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm not willing. I'm not willing to take that chance because of, uh, somebody tells me that, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with what you eat, uh, with yeah. what you eat, because if you're hunting, if you're hunting like redheads in coastal Texas and they're just, they're literally roosting out there in, in salt water, you know, hanging out 90% of their day in salt water, maybe coming inland a little bit to, you know, in some rice fields or other, you know, agricultural ponds or so on maybe but you know i that might that might have some validity when you're kind of talking about those species of birds in those saltwater environments where the only feed is small fish and minnows you know so i just think that waterfowl if they don't have to work that hard for fish and minnows they won't, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and they're, yeah. they're going to, if there's a plentiful, you know, there's a plentiful enough feed in the area that's just vegetational, local, you know, natural vegetation, then they're going to go after it because they can just dip their beak in the water, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's funny that you say that because when I, when we were hunting them ringnecks, um, 
the the guy that took us out and you know i kind of asked him you know whether well uh, their big diet in those farm ponds were actually snails they would just yep. snag the snails and, and eat them that that was their big diet so my the ring neck when i cooked it i kept the skin on so i mean it it tasted good so yeah. um yeah I the gray ducks like, the the gray yeah. ducks or gadwalls, as most people will call them. We call them gray ducks in Louisiana. They And when you hunt them in places like Pontichin, Cario, uh, Dulac and Dularge, that's all very saltwater marsh. And they eat, they eat saltwater snails. And actually, those I find those ducks, I still eat them with the skin on, but they, they end up t- tasting more fishy than any ringneck I've ever had. Yeah. Are those, are those gray ducks eating snails out of salt water. And, yeah. um, they, they ended up being and you and you can look in their gizzards. It's all cracked. It's all cracked snail shells. In their gizzards. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ducks that get, that get a bad rap. Like I, I mean, so I, I grew up hunting Northern California and I'm a big spoonie shooter. I like yeah, spoonies. Oh. One up too. Yeah. But yeah. I do think there it might be a, the spoonies that I shoot in the rice field, I think they do taste a little bit different than the ones hanging out in the crawfish. Cabinet. Yeah. Because like you yeah. said, it's getting, it's, it's getting the carbohydrates from that rice. Yep. If they're hanging out in that rice field and it cleans them out. But I mean, it's, I think they all more or less taste the same. It's like you said, if they're eating, you know, if they're not eating something that's going to give it that really strong taste. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I always feel like people spoonies get a bad name because they're like they're kind of like second chance birds. You know, they're definitely the ones where you you shoot the drake or the hen down, and the one that got away will circle back and look for it. You know, they'll they'll act dumb and do it right a lot of a lot of times. <laughs> you know, um, they they can be a little unsporty when they're in big like when you have a big population of them in an area. But, um, again, like where we grew up, we see a lot of spoonbills actually still. And, um, they're all just eating the same things as the pool do. You know what I mean? Like they're literally all eating like the same thing. And so, um, no, we do not, we do not hesitate on a smile now. No way. Yeah. Or I come to Lake Charles Mallard. I know we've been talking a lot about spi- uh, spiceology and uh, oh, some of our listeners might not you know, know or might be interested. Um, what are your go-tos on the spiceology? And um, can you I mean, just talk about the brand and your product a little bit with it? Yeah. Um, well, Spiceology is a spice company out of Spokane, Washington. Um, and I've been working with them since I was in New York City as a as a chef, buying all my spices from them. And they're direct to consumer. You can find them at like Ace Hardware and um, and the grilling section and stuff like that now on your shelves. But you know, select places. Most of it's direct to consumer online. But they by far, um, whether it's single spices or spice blends, have the freshest spices. In, in the country. Let, let me, let me, for your listeners, the history of North America, of civilization in North America was based around trade from country to country to country, whether that's Central Asia and Europe through Latin America and then into North America. And a lot of what people traded with were spices. I mean, think about this. Currency was like 
spices were traded for all sorts of different metals, flowers, people at some point, you know what I mean? Like we used to put a lot of value on spices. And I think over the industrialization of America, it became one of those things that we just pick up a generic brand in the grocery store. And although that may be fine for some, as we get into like how people are cooking these days and using social media and learn and wanting to be more, um, they, they want to cook different genres of food from different countries and so on. They're looking at up in their game of cooking. And one of the easiest, most effective ways to do that, do that is through spices. Um, and like, you, you know, this living in Louisiana, eating a lot of Cajun food. Like we use a lot of red pepper, a lot of cayenne. I'm talking about like getting past that. And there's all kind of, I mean, there's literally thousands of different spices on spiceology, but one thing they do great is spice blends, really funky ones. Like one they have called black and blue, which is a mixture of blackening season and blue cheese flavored Ooh. stuff like seasoning. It's basically yeah. dried blue Ooh. cheese and blackening season. And so it's called black and blue. They have, um, a honey habanero, which is dried habanero, honey granules, and so on. I have six blends through them. I have a wild game, like a, like a, think about, um, like a red meat wild game. So duck, venison, um, axis, elk, you name it, hog, so on. And I, I developed that spice, that spice blend is called, um, game changer. And I developed that spice blend, uh, to really play, with those flavors of like duck and waterfowl. And that's like brown sugars, red wine powder, red wine vinegar, Worcestershire powder, um, black pepper, thyme, rosemary, like very warm, um, very warm kind of uh, winter spices and, and flavors. Um, you know, you could, you could do all kind of stuff with that. I have a seafood and fish blend that grows great on, uh, just what it says, fish, shrimp, crab, uh, you name it. And then I have four other blends that we developed to make sausage around. And so, because we knew a lot of game, a lot of hunters were going to make sausage, they were going to give to their processors and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and so that's what the other four blends and it's a chorizo blend. It's a breakfast sausage blend. It's an andouille blend and it's a bratwurst blend. And, um, you can find them all in spiceology. If you look <laughs> under, like go on, go on spiceology.com. And I believe the tab is like collabs or you can search my name, chef Jean-Paul or Jean-Paul bourgeois. You'll, you'll find it somewhere. I think they sell it on Amazon too, but really like the whole company in a whole did a great job of saying like the most basic thing in people's pantry or spices and blends. Um, it's what every, like everybody has something in that cupboard. Most of them are outdated, old age, flavorless, and just a shell of what they could be. Spiceology did a great job, like going back to that foundation of cooking, which is spices, seasonings, salts, peppers, so on and so forth, and saying, we're going to do this like really well. We're going to take our time to source these ingredients from around the world and, and mill them in, in our, in, in Spokane, Washington and distribute them as a, as like they, they, their whole thing is they grind, you know, smaller batches more time. So they always have fresh grinds going through and getting packaged. And so I just can't tell, like, if you want to become a better chef, if you want to be a better cook, start with like, as, as silly as it sounds, like start with what you season 
your everything with. And I'm talking from the salt to the black pepper and your pepper mill and everything after that. And that's, that's the easiest way to make your food taste better is use better seasonings, not just the regular seasons you might find. So I would totally say it doesn't even have to be my blends. It doesn't even have to be spiceology. Like, but do your research, try to find those, try to find those companies now who are really putting the best stuff out there and uh, you'll, you'll reap the rewards on the dinner table. No doubt. So I was very interested when you were t- telling me about that sausage, uh, the, the spices for sausage. Cause I've really been wanting to, you know, once you re- like you said, when you start getting to a number of bigger birds, you start getting a lot of meat and it's hard, you know, to yeah. always do it one way. And I've, I've been really wanting to make my own sausage. Could you just kind of give us like a little run through, like say I, I got the chorizo. I wanted to make a chorizo. Something. Is that possible out of stuff? I'm doing a duck chorizo sausage. You know, kind of like no, not not yeah, not at all. The thing with the thing with like making waterfowl sausage, the only what you want to be careful for is like especially like snow goose are great about this. Like you can go shoot a bunch of snow goose during conservation season and use all the breasts for sausage, and it's going to make an incredible chorizo. First thing you got to do is just make sure you get all the pellets out of the breast because when you go to grind that, it can mess up your 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 grinder. And after that, it's just like making any sausage for for like snow goose, for example. Once you get it all cubed up and ready to get through the grinder, um, you're going to need some type of fat content. Um, it, for chorizo, I would use like fresh pork belly okay. or some type of some type of pork fat but pork belly is a good one. Cause it's, you know, it's 50, 50 fat meat. And I would make like a 70, 30 blend, 70, 70% by weight snow goose, 30% ground belly. And then the process is just pass that through the grinder. You get all that. And then if you buy it, like for the chorizo, um, spice, when you get the one pound bottle, it'll say like, this much weight for this many pounds, right? So it might be like perfect. I forget. I was going to ask about the ratio, stuff like that, and that's great. You know, getting so you know if you know if you have five pounds of sausage you're making on the bottle, it'll tell you how much to use for one pound. Times that by five, and there you go. That's your that's your chorizo kind of weight there. So then after that, like you don't even need to put that in a casing. Chorizo is great as a crumbled sausage in your, in your eggs and your rancho, um, and your, um, huevos rancher, huevos rancheros in your, in your pinto beans and your chili, so on and so forth. And like, so the thing about that, that Creole tomato chorizo blend, it is one of my favorites. It has a bunch of tomato powder in it, has a bunch of cumin, has a bunch of coriander, a bunch of dried cilantro, lime zest, um, and so on and so forth. And it makes a great, it makes it like, I love to use that one for my chili base. So I stopped using chili powder altogether. If I'm making chili, I'm using the, my, my, uh, Creole tomato chorizo blend as my chili powder. Uh, so even if you just have ground meat, you know what I mean? Like you have plain ground meat, venison meat, waterfowl meat, whatever you got, hog meat, all you need to do, brown that meat, add some onions, garlic, whatever, peppers, boom, boom, boom. Add your spice mix. Boom, boom, boom. Add some chicken stock or water. Let it simmer. You got a great chili. It makes an, a phenomenal chili. Yeah. JP, so, uh, my language is right. Yeah. So and stuff, man. That's- JP, 
That's my home. <laughs> I'm excited now. I'm making that free zone. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that we're talking about sausage. The first podcast I ever heard you on was the um, uh, the DU podcast, and you went yeah. on a on a rant about um, a blueberry muffin sausage. It's <laughs> <laughs> so whack, dude. So whack. Go ahead. What's your what's your? So, <laughs> you <got> to... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, the first time you know, I, I think I was even before Duck Camp dinners. I think you were on the promoting Duck Camp di- dinners, actually. Yeah, probably, probably so. Probably. Yeah, so. you went yeah. on the, and you so somehow got brought up about um, a blueberry sausage, a blueberry muffin sausage that somebody would made or whatnot, and um, you had a real good <laughs> rant about that, and you you kind of talked about taking stuff and going back to the basics on cooking, especially mm-hmm. with wild game, introducing, you were talking about introducing people to wild game, but you know, about not taking it and making it something that's so far fetched where, you know, you kind of like intimidate people who wanted to eat it. And um, yeah. Where would you even see that blueberry muffin sausage recipe at? Yeah. Well, you know, like a lot of things on social media, these types of foods like blueberry muffin sausage or any other, like, like you've seen this braided salmon that they do now, you know, that they did maybe like a year ago, they would cut it, the whole plank of salmon in three, then braid it, then put it in the smoker. I'm like, Sir, like, really? Like, yeah. that's like, okay. So like nobody even knows how to cook a piece. Like uh, these people don't even know how to cook a piece of salmon properly. Yet they're going to go ahead and cut it up into these long ropes and then braid them like it's your two-year-old's hair on gra- on like <laughs> picture day. Like it's silly. It's ri- it's ridiculous. And so, um, you know, I think that's just part of our society right now and our, and our attention spans and our just our false need to consume these types of entertainment, like people making blueberry muffin sausage or salmon braided salmon planks or whatever the hell they're calling them. <laughs> um, like, and that's just, that's just part of our society right now. It's up to people like me, um, who, who believe like there's still, there's still a lot of thoughtfulness that can come and just like pan roasting a chicken breast with the skin on. Like, yeah. I know it sounds lame and it, it, it can be. And it, I grew up with bland, dry chicken a lot of times when, you know, um, when some, when my mom cooked it, right. Because, but as a chef, I've maybe roasted, I don't know, 10,000 pan roasted chicken breasts in my life. You know what I mean? Like, and when you get those types of reps, you start to uncover like, Oh wait, like I can do this a lot better this way, or this makes my interior meat really succulent but still a crispy skin or I can use these herbs to base with butter and like fold in these different flavors. And so you think about this, this idea and the, the a pan roast chicken breast, just a metaphor for any food that we cook could be a steak, could be a plank of salmon, could be a piece of wild game, but it's, I have all these like tens of thousands of reps when it comes to making things, different dishes. And in a lot of ways, like I just want to share those, things that I learned making them 10,000 times when somebody's made them 10 times and they keep doing the same way and they think it's going to be different or trying whatever recipe, the things you uncover through repetition. I mean, that's how we all get good at it, right? That's how we become good shots. 
when we're waterfowl hunting, that's how we become good parents, fathers, mothers, you know, by having the reps. And, um, so there's something to like being a professional chef and growing up in that career since I was 15 years old, it gives me reps in a lot of this food. And I'm at the stage now where I'm so tired of the noise and the noise being like the blueberry muffin sausage. Cause these folks <laughs> ain't even figured out how to make a good, like salt and pepper pork breakfast sausage. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like you haven't even figured out how to like reach Jimmy Dean level, you know, like, <laughs> but you're going, you're going and make, you're going to make blueberry muffin sausage. So uh, I, I thought I, I kind of think it's like part of what I'm into right now is really getting back into, all right, like if I got this whole chicken and I got some new potatoes, you know, and I got chicken in the fridge I need to use. And I got some little red bliss, red new potatoes in, in my cupboard. How, how can I make that really delicious? Yeah. You know? And from a chef's point of view, we have all these like little tips and tricks and nuances that we can look for and kind of communicate. That's going to help you make that really good with minimal ingredients. And so, you know, like I used to work at this Roman Italian restaurant. And um, one of the things that the chef told me when I started working there um, is that um, is that the food is the Roman food is so simple and straightforward and minimal ingredients that the technique and how you work with these ingredients, it's going to matter a lot because we can't cover it up with five different ingredients or little syrups or whatever, whatever. We can't cover up our mistakes with all these different ingredients because the food that we cook is minimalist. So we have to buy the best ingredient that we can and we have to treat it in the best way that we can. And that really stuck with me for a long time till this day. And it probably will for the rest of my life because I go to the grocery store I'm not looking like my, my mind's like, okay, tonight I'm going to make this, this, and that. My mind goes straight to the vegetable section, right? Because mostly I know what meat I have in my freezer. I got all this fish. I got all these ducks. I got all this hog, I got all this venison, right? I can pull whatever that out the freezer. When I go to the grocery store, I'm like, okay, the Swiss shard looks nice. The collard greens look like crap. So I'm definitely not going to use that. My point is if something, if you read, if you're going off a recipe and something says to use collard greens, you go to the grocery store and they look like they're about like, you know, the, they're on their last leg about to get the last hammer in the coffin and get thrown away. Like don't buy the collard greens, buy the kale, yeah. buy the Swiss chard, buy the cabbage, you know, and recreate the recipe. because really like, you know, that's, that's, what's gonna, that's, what's gonna like make a difference. Right. It's like, and the other thing, Lastly, on my rant here, you got me on this rant. <laughs> the, last, the last thing I would. <laughs> I've been waiting all episode to like, bring that up too. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I would say about that is like, people people ask me all the time, like, what's the best advice you give to a home cook, a new cook, a a, a a an aspiring professional cook? I was like, man, don't worry about what it's going to look like when it's finished right now. Don't worry like the pic, the how, what the picture is going to look like when you, when you want to put it on the gram. Don't look, don't worry about the cheese pull when you cut it across and show that cut section of the sandwich. Don't worry about that. Make the food as delicious as you can, period. Mm-hmm. Full stop. And then focus on the people that are actually eating with you. Cause all they care about is that they can spend time with you. They don't give a shit about what it looks like on Instagram. They don't give a yeah. shit of how, how long it took you to do this and that or nothing. They care about sharing this meal with you, your loved ones, the people in your crew, your tribe, your family, 
and focus on that. If we start focusing on the people that we're cooking for instead of the people on Instagram and how just to like prop up our own egos, um, we'll be in a lot better place. And we're going to stop cooking things like braided salmon and blueberry (laughs) stuff, sausage, you know, because we're going to be focused on the people. The important thing is the people that we're cooking for. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes absolutely. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen them braid. uh, I think it was a beef tips and stuff. It it blew my mind. But um, so, yeah, trust me. Um, So I guess before we get get to that, that time or whatever, I actually where I'm actually want to talk about this upcoming season. Um, Can we and I know there's certain things that you can and can't say or if you just have free game, I don't know. But um, can you let the listeners know when this when this upcoming season comes out, uh, where they can get it? And then maybe come some insights. Are y'all going to go to, are y'all going to be in a different state? Are y'all going to be traveling? Yeah. Yeah. So look, Duck Camp Dinner season two out on Meat Eaters YouTube channel sometime probably in August, maybe early September. What we're going to do is we're, once we start feeling that, feeling that need to get out during keel season, that's when we're going to start putting release in the first episode. But it looks like right now will be six to eight episodes. And for season two, we're going to focus on coastal Louisiana. In season one, it was just at one duck camp with these, with this core crew of, of hunters. But season two, we're going to go to multiple duck camps, one in Venice, well, camps in Venice in the southeastern part of Louisiana, camps all the way west in Calcasieu and Cameron Parishes. And also we're going to have a visit down in southern Terrebonne Parish which is what we call the Cajun coastline, mostly everything from I-10 on south um, running throughout the state. And so it's really an exploratory. We're going to move around a lot. We're going to see new characters. We're going to shoot new ducks, new geese, new places, a lot of new fun, dude. It's It's a completely different, like, it's not completely different in sense of like how we filmed it with people there. It's the same authentic kind of storytelling and characters. It's just now we get to see all these different environments. And that's the, when going back to our conversation earlier, like that's what we love about. That's what people loved about duck ham dinner season one is that even if they didn't have that floating camp, even if they weren't a waterfowl hunter, they still saw some resemblance of themselves or their friends in us because they have a camp just like that somewhere in the Pacific Northwest or in the Chesapeake Bay or somewhere along the central, uh, the central flyway. And, and they, and they saw themselves in that. So we wanted to really just expand that into coastal Louisiana. Um, as we start to think about season three, um, we're going to, we're going to travel outside of Louisiana and we're still trying to figure out where that's going to be. But we love this idea of spending whole seasons in one region, right? Like, this whole season was in coastal Louisiana. The next whole season could be in Texas, guys. How much great nice. waterfowl hunting and different waterfowl hunting is in Texas? From yeah. from you know the Milo Fields in Lubbock to, to coastal, yeah, Cayuga. You going up here up north yep. towards uh, you know Texacoma. So so that's the that's the that's the idea is to really like focus on regions of places because one thing we kept hearing about duck ham dinner season one was that how proud Louisianians were that finally, like there was a show that represented them well. And you all yeah. know those shows that are on television that are about Louisianians and they're, they're, they're BS, you know, like uh, there's some, 
there's some truth to them for sure, but maybe it's 5%, you know, and, and the rest is kind of embellished and scripted and so on. And yeah. we can all sense that we all know that. But mm-hmm. I think for me, that was the proudest thing to read. It was like my fellow Louisianans were saying, thank you for creating a show that represented us well, that represented us truthfully. You are authentic. You were, you know, historically sound, you know, like those things. And I was, and I want to do that. We want to be that voice for any and all regions that we go to, whether that's the Chesapeake Bay, the Pacific Northwest, Texas, so on and so forth. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. Season two is going to be great. Coastal Louisiana, Meat Eater YouTube channel coming out later this summer. Stay tuned for more info, info on that. Just follow me at Chef John underscore Paul. I'm going to start really kind of teasing out how that's going to be kind of uh, what those episodes are going to look like uh, in the next couple months as we get closer into this uh, later summer. But um, it's going to be a ball. If you like season one, you're in for a treat season two. That's all I can say about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, um, and I know we got to wrap it up, but um, go ahead and just for the listeners, so they can go ahead and hear uh, where they can read, where they can connect to your social media page. You have, do you have Facebook? Um, YouTube yeah. and Instagram. So, yeah. Yeah, I do. And, but my, my most, the thing I focus on a lot is Instagram and that's okay. chef Jean J E A N underscore Paul. Uh, and look, I, I, I try to answer as many of the as direct messages as, as I can, um, yeah. all the comments. So if you have some cooking questions, some hunting questions, some, you know, don't ask for a full recipe because I'm not going to type it out in a, in a direct message <laughs> or <a> caption, <laughs> you know, but if you want some, if you want some tips, tricks and advice from a chef and somebody that loves cooking, loves cooking for people, most importantly, loves duck hunting, um, then shoot me a message. I'll try to get to it. But that's chef Jean underscore Paul. Uh, I am on Facebook at Jean Paul Bourgeois um, and chef Jean Paul. I have a page there be honest with you i don't really know how facebook works anymore so it's like <laughs> the pages and then separate things and like i don't know so just yeah. hit me up on instagram follow me there and uh you'll see me on meat eater uh channel on meat eater youtube quite a bit in, in the coming months yeah y'all definitely got to check them out um i guess before we end did y'all have any ending comments joe and sharp oh uh, the I got, I will say this, um, JP, you hit it around that on the head about, um, the stuff about Louisiana, how you guys representative, like great show. And it was like, you know, sometimes the state gets a, a, a little mis, uh, misunderstood by I me. Mean, I grew up in Northern yeah. California, hunting the rice fields and me and my wife, you know, we're both from Northern California. When it came time to retire, we stayed here. I mean, it was, you know, we fell mm-hmm. in love with it and, um, People, you know, people who haven't watched your show and they're outside the state of Louisiana, if you want the true, wholesome, what the state's about, watch watch season one. And uh, just that season one alone, you'll fall in love with the state. I appreciate Sorry. that. Thank you. I guess my last thing is since we're kind of going with this Louisiana theme, what is your <laughs> favorite way to cook a speckle belly? Well, um, so what I like to do is I like to separate. I like take my legs off. I, mm-hmm. I plug the whole bird, right? Plug the whole bird, take the legs off, cut the backbone out. And then what you're left with is a, what I call a crown. Uh, and the crown would be, for those who don't know, um, a crown is when you have the two breasts 
skin on, fat on still, still attached to the breastplate, but all separated from the backbone and so on. So it's, it's really simple. Actually, you just kind of cut the legs off. Then once you had the legs off, you just go down that backbone, cut the ribs out and you kind of, you can use the backbone um, for stock and so on. I like to cook the legs and like red wine, red wine braise kind of thing. Um, you know, a lot of herbs, a lot of vegetables, braise them in red wine so they can fall off the bone. And then the breast or the crown, I like to roast on the bone. So as is like, I'm roasting it on the breastplate. Both breasts are still attached, skin still on. And if you can, I like to age them and I like to age them at least three days up to seven days in the fridge. That's if you have the time, if you're going to ask my ideal way. If my ideal way, I'd like to age them, let's say five days in the fridge, uncovered, just letting it air dry. Okay. And then, and then the day before I'm ready to cook it, I lightly season it with salt and pepper. And then, then if you want, like, here's the thing, like after that, it's, you can cook it and it'll be delicious right there. All right. If you just roast it with salt and pepper after it being aged in the fridge. Um, what I've done in the past is I've like taken garlic uh, and I've microplane that I like grated it. So it's just like a mush. Um, then I'll take like chopped rosemary. Then I'll take Dijon mustard. So let's call it equal parts, garlic, rosemary, Dijon mustard, equal parts, make that mix that together with just like a tiny bit of olive oil. And so that speckle belly crown has been aged. It's been salt and peppered. Now the day that I'm going to roast it, I smear that garlic, rosemary and Dijon mustard, like all over the breast, all on the underside. And then I roast it in the oven for about at around 400 degrees till it reaches a temperature at about hundred about 130 degrees. Let it rest for 15 minutes and slice it off the bone. And then you got a perfectly mid rare, no more than medium speckle belly goose that has been aged salt and peppered the day before. And then has that like really herbaceous rub of rosemary, garlic, and mustard slather with some olive oil. And then you match that with some red wine braised goose legs and you got that, that medium rare speckle belly goose breast. I mean, it doesn't even matter what the side is. It's going, you're just going to go ham on everyone, you know? So <laughs> yeah. that yeah. ideally, ideally, but see, like I didn't do, I didn't complicate that with a whole bunch of ingredients or a whole bunch of bullshit. Right. What I did is I took a simple ingredient, like a goose breast crown. I aged it. So I, so I reduced the amount of moisture, which when you age it, right, it's going to purge some me some myoglobin, right? And it's going to look like blood. That's really myoglobin. And it's going to purge that. And that's water. That's essentially like when you add water to your coffee, you dilute it. When you have water in your meat, it's diluted. When you age it, it, it loses weight. It loses water. It concentrates those flavors. It also makes it better to eat. And it also makes a better roast when you roast something dry. So again, like all I did was take a very simple ingredient and, mani and manip manipulate it through time. That's it. Let, let it age for five days. And I, and I already made that just a little bit better. I salt and pepper. That's the only seasoning. Good sea salt, good fresh cracked pepper. And then I took basically four ingredients and made a little smear before I roasted it perfectly. You know what I mean? Like that's not a lot of, then you're going to have, when you rest that, that crown, you're going to have all kinds of drippings right? Like little mid-rare, bloody, mustardy, rosemary drippings, yeah. olive oil, and so on and so forth. Then you spoon that all over your cut breast. You know, you, you, it's, a, it's a pan gravy. It's a pan sauce that's been made underneath the resting pan, the roasting pan. So 
I honestly like that's my favorite way to cook that goose and it may take some time but it's it's not a lot of ingredients and it's not like I'm literally just roasting it in the oven I'm not putting it in the smoker I'm not putting the sous vide machine I'm not doing none of that you know I'm using just good technique time and and good ingredients yeah and that sounds honestly I think I'm going to do that next time <laughs> and no blueberry sausage no blueberry sausage. Yeah, like now you can buy you can buy meat agers and uh, like you can buy those now. Like just like when you go to the fancy steakhouses, whatever steakhouse y'all like to go to, wherever it is in your hometown, they have dry aged beef. Like that's what they're doing. That's why it costs so much money because they're aging it in that dry aging room for thirty days, sixty days, one hundred twenty days. I'm not saying you do. Maybe you can do that. You could do that with a goose. Absolutely, you could. But I'm saying just age it in your fridge for five days and you'll see a difference, you know, yeah. and um, but you can buy a, a dry ager at on online right now for probably 800 bucks if you want to if you're into that type of thing. So <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, just, you know? I just bought a duck boat, so I don't think my wife will approve for that one. Right Yeah, but um, man, JP, I. This whole conversation was amazing. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, we definitely, it, man, if you're ever up in North Texas, you know, you have my number, give me a shout. We'll go get a couple hunting. Um, we'll do. I'm mean, basically a three, three hour away neighbor, man. I've done driven yeah. much farther than that for a bird. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm in. Yeah, man, we, we got to get together, man. Uh, I definitely, uh, take advantage of me getting, uh, taking my boat out and then Joe in Louisiana. I, I know for opening day, uh, we're all going to link up in Louisiana for teal season. So, or opening teal. So, but, um, hell yeah. Look, if I got a good, I got a good guy out of gate on Taplin that is always loaded in teal for teal season. We can all do it together. Oh man. That'd be amazing. We, I definitely got to get with you after the podcast. That'd be amazing. Um, I, I do want to, before we end this, I want to thank you and, for everything you do and what you've done for Louisianans and not just them inspiring people like, um, us waterfowlers out there, um, inspiring the hunter, inspiring the outdoorsman. Um, I really appreciate that. And I, I'm looking forward to uh, season two. Uh, y'all check them out. If y'all haven't seen season one, it's definitely a, a must watch. Uh, that it's, it's just hilarious. Um, these guys just, a couple guys, <laughs> friends growing up. Like it, it seems like they're just buddies from high school hanging out. So, um, yeah. I love yeah. it. it. I love it. And I love, I love the, I love the whole waterfowl therapy, uh, theme that we always talk about. So, um, I want to, yeah. bef but before we end this, I want to thank, uh, the real, uh, the real decoy. Um, they sponsor this pod, the podcast, uh, you want to help support flyway connections, uh, use promo code on their website, FWC 22. Um, and, uh, I want to thank Valen Honor Outdoors for what they do for our service members, first responders and veterans. Um, and like always, y'all have a good one and let Valor not fail. <laughs> <laughs>